How you doing? You okay? How's it going? How you feeling today? Welcome to South of Fine, a podcast from Right Track Medical Group dedicated to destigmatizing mental health in the South through genuine conversation about the challenges that we all face every day. For more information, please visit our website, righttrackmedical.com backslash South of Fine. While we hope you enjoy listening to our podcast, please remember that this is not a substitute for professional diagnosis or for the treatment of any mental health condition. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of South of Fine. As usual, I am your host, Reese. So as a lot of you guys know, over the last couple of months, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the mental health of college students. But one thing we haven't touched on is the role alcohol plays in the mental health of this age group. Maybe we've touched on it, but we haven't really gone in depth about it. For many young adults, it's in college that alcohol becomes central to their social interaction. But that drinking, as we know, can often become a problem for them. According to results from the 2018 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, approximately 1 in 10 young adults ages 18 to 25 meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder. Hmm. So to delve into this topic, I am joined today by Dr. Stephen Panel, psychiatrist and chief medical officer for Right Track Medical Group. Dr. Panel is also the former medical director at Right at Oxford Treatment Center. Dr. Panel, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So as we usually do, let's start with a little bit of context. Obviously, we know that College kids abuse alcohol. I mean, there are entire movies that are based upon that activity. And we know that there are a lot of problems associated with, with, um, with that, and one of which is just simply drinking too much. But how much is considered too much for an 18 to 24-year-old? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start even a little sooner than that, uh, and then we'll kind of go into that. One of the things that we do as a society is we look at college as sort of being a a special circumstance or a unique environment. And we use that as sort of a filter, if you will, uh, that overlays how we view and, um, and look at alcohol use. Uh, doctors and addiction specialists and, and, and really people in the healthcare community don't necessarily see it the same way. And I'll just give you an example. Um, you know, call me old fashioned and, and more of a traditionalist, but really I still am one of those people that believes if you're not 21 years old, you shouldn't be drinking at all. So a lot of times when parents come to me and they say, well, how much is it? how much is okay for my son or daughter or somebody to drink? And I always ask them, well, how old are they? And if they're less than 21 and you always tell them that the appropriate amount of alcohol use for anybody under the age of 21 is, is actually zero. Uh, and that's pretty hard for a lot of people to even really consider in nowadays in time and age. And, and one of the things we've seen um, as part of that is, is that the acceptance of underage drinking and even teenage drinking has become so common uh, you know, the last study that I looked at said seven out of 10 high school seniors have already started to drink and to experiment with alcohol and different things like that. So the, the high school is uh, even exposure to alcohol now has become so commonplace in so many areas that uh, by the time a person gets to college, it almost just becomes, you know, uh, something that's not even on the concern of um being quote unquote illegal or unhealthy or those sorts of things. It's usually not until a young person gets a minor in possession ticket, a DUI or some sort of a consequence as a result of their drinking. So, you know, all that to be said, I always tell high school people, 
and parents and anybody that asks me, you know, if you're not 21, you shouldn't be drinking at all. Anything above zero is considered to be a concern or a problem. The other part of that is, uh, so, so technically there's, there's some specifics out there. And one of the things that, um, it gets pretty technical. So I'm going to cover some of those things, but, uh, heavy alcohol use specifically is considered to be anything more than eight drinks per week, uh, for women or anything more than three drinks per day for women. Uh, so it, it kind of breaks out into, you know, a male, uh, female men, women kind of scenario, uh, but heavy drinking for women, if you have more than eight drinks in a seven day period, and if you, or if, or as part of that, if you have more than three drinks uh, in one day, that could that can be considered heavy drinking. For men, it's 15 drinks per week or anything more than four drinks uh, in one day. Uh, so a pretty, pretty significant difference there. Usually the first question I get asked is, why is there such a difference between eight drinks for women versus 15 drinks for men? A lot of that dates back to... Um, the female body, the liver, the way it breaks down alcohol, the, uh, the, the process of that, it takes a, a much bigger toll on women. They, they don't metabolize it as effectively. So one drink for a woman is about the equivalent of two drinks for a man, just because of how our livers work differently. Uh, you know, that's still to be said, you know, that's considered for people that are 21 and older, you know, uh, um, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and SAMHSA, all these organizations that uh, that monitor alcohol use are very clear that what they're talking about is 21 years old and older. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a little bit to discuss about that as well. Uh, the the second thing I usually talk with patients about is is do you really understand what a drink is? And most of them do not. And so for example, uh, well, the way we measure alcohol is very specific. It's a chemical. It's a it's a, it's a thing that's out there. So the way we measure it is very different amongst people to people, person to person, culture to culture, you know, restaurant to restaurant even. I mean, you know, uh, and so I'll give you a little example. Uh, when we're measuring these drinks, it's, it's what you consider one standard drink. So one standard drink is either one 12-ounce beer or it can be one uh, five-ounce glass of wine or it can be one drink with 1.5 ounces of hard liquor in it. Um, so the interesting thing is, is some of the, some of the restaurants and some of the places that people frequent, they may order one, you know, one drink or one beverage, but it may have way more alcohol in it than one standard drink. Mm -hmm. And this is where you'll hear people say, well, you only had two or three drinks. Well, if you do the math on the measured amount of what they drank, they could have actually been, you know, consuming a lot more alcohol ounces than, than they realized Absolutely. Um, in the South and in the Southeast, a lot of restaurants you see, they don't really measure these things out. It's more, uh, they just sort of pour things, they do things. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of variability and the very few restaurants actually are still measuring these things out. Uh, I have noticed in other areas, bigger cities, different places. Sometimes you do see that where bars actually measure out the quantity. That's usually a cost, you know, cost saving sure. thing that the, that the places will do. But, uh, so anyway, that's one of the things that people people really don't think much about. Uh, now, when they're drinking beer, drinking things that they that they open, that they have a specific identified amount in it, that's that's more specific. When you start talking to patients about drinking wine or drinking you know al- you know hard liquor beverages, it gets a little bit more difficult to track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that <clears throat> the first thing that occurred to me when you were talking about the twenty one is is there some science behind brains developing and um when does the adolescent brain stop developing Mm -hmm. um you know can you speak a little bit to that because i think that's that's a very important part of this discussion sure sure 
Well, and, and so, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I think now if, uh, if people were looking at alcohol and making decisions about overall healthcare, you know, in today's times, uh, the drinking age would, would more than likely be set a whole lot higher than it is. Hmm. A lot of what we do with uh, the alcohol age being set at 21 was based off the best data and evidence they had at that time. You got to realize, you know, drinking beer and wine and whiskey has been around for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but uh, the adolescent brain, for most parts of what we think as far as developing to a place where it's mature enough to handle uh, social drinking and alcohol use is, is still around the age of 21 or 22. Uh, oddly enough, uh, there are some studies out there that indicate that the female brain may develop a little more maturely sooner than the male uh, male brain does, but you could, or, or like in some households, they say, you know, the, the female brain develops at age 21 or 22 and the, the male brain never develops for you know, kind of, kind of the message. So, you know, yeah, you're not going to appreciate that. But honestly, I think most of what we know about young people now, and, and when you look at things, really, there's a delineation in the, in the, in the human body at age 25 to 26. Honestly, I think if, if you were to put this up to researchers and you really did really study and you looked at, you really looked at these things now more than likely, you know, if this was to be able to, you know, be looked at again and really based on research and science, um, more than likely we'd come out with a drinking age. that was probably 25 or 26 years old, you know, which then would almost immediately um, remove drinking from the college scene sort of on an age base pretty, pretty quickly. If you think about that, most, most people that are in, you know, graduating college graduate by the time they're 25 or 26, unless they get into um, higher level education programs. But mm-hmm. so it's something that's interesting to see. And we, when we, we do see that the brain, the brain sort of develops over the lifespan as an organ. It never stops developing. It never stops changing, but getting to a place where it's not um, creating pathways, creating very important uh, parts of its structure you could say that 22, you know, is probably a good age for that. If you waited till 25 or 26, you'd be significantly hmm. uh, even more protected by that. Interesting. Um, speaking of the physical effects of alcohol, can, um, you know, we, we understand the consequences of heavy drinking. Do most of us think, especially when we're young, do we really think about the, the effects that they can have on your mental health? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think most of our, our younger population nowadays, you know, with, with the, the amount of information they have at their fingertips, uh, they, they, they are much more exposed to things uh, earlier on uh, now than, than people used to be. And so uh, their ability to consume information and to, to be exposed to things is at, is at an all-time high and it's, it's getting increased every day. But most young people... I do not think take seriously the effects of alcohol on their brain, their development, how it affect how it affects them, how it impacts them. You know, acutely when they're under the influence of it, they may have some appreciation for it and, and maybe somewhat the following day. But I don't think there's many, you know, 16, 17 year olds out there looking looking back over the last month saying, wow, I really am doing some potential short term, you know, midterm, long term damage to myself with the weekend binge drinking and things like that. I just don't think young people see it that way. How is it, how is, without going, you know, super in depth, what are the effects of alcohol in our brain? So except, ex- excess alcohol, not drinking responsibly, but too much yeah. alcohol. Yeah. So, so the main thing that we know is it interrupts chemical pathways in your brain that helps communication. So, you know, our brain is an organ that's all based off of electricity and different chemical transmitters, neurotransmitters. And so when you put alcohol into your brain, a lot of people, 
um, you know, for, for better or worse, they don't realize that it is, you know, in, in, in excessive amounts, it can become toxic. So it can disrupt the chemical balance in your brain, if you will, which really is more of a communication system with your, how your brain communicates with other parts of your body, how it communicates with, you know, coordination and different things like that. Uh, a lot of, a lot of people will experience that in the acute onset of it. If they've had too much to drink, they have trouble walking, they have trouble talking, different things like that. It's pretty, pretty physically, um, you can observe that pretty easily. A lot of people underestimate that that can go on for 24 to 48 hours later. There can be some difficulty with, you know, coordination, uh, dizzy spells, you know, different things like that. But the main thing is, is in the days after that, you can have mood changes, you can have behavior changes, you have difficulty with your thinking, not be able to think clearly, you know, and some of those things can go on for, you know, several days, depending on the level and uh, the toxicity level that was consumed. Wow. Really? I didn't know that. That's that's interesting. And so that would mean that if someone suffers from depression, alcohol can have a massive effect on enhancing that depression. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing we see about, quote unquote, self-medication and kind of the um, the minimization of, of alcohol use, if you will, to uh, to handle stress and to cope with things and things of that nature you know, the thing that I see as part of that as being the really the really difficult thing for people to understand is people who are the most vulnerable to it also receive the most benefit in the beginning. And so hmm. these are people that will tell you, you know, I never really drank that much. But when I got into college or got into this situation or that situation, I started drinking wine or I started drinking beer. I started drinking hard liquor. And it's, it's usually one of those things that it's not uh, intentional. It usually happens as part of the coincidence of, of where you are. Other people are doing it. It's more socially acceptable. It's usually something that people just sort of find themselves doing as part of, as part of uh, just that period of that time in their life. Oddly enough, the people who get the most benefit from it, I mean, I've had patients that come and tell me that, you know, when they started drinking that the alcohol was the best thing that they had done for themselves in the first year, year and a half, sometimes two years, for making them feel better. So they get a really profound benefit from it, you know, in the beginning, but as it wears off, as it goes away in those days following, like we talked about the, the, the effect of, of not having it around or not having it in their brain also significantly makes the symptoms worse. So you get in this process that, you know, as a person, when you drink, you feel a whole lot better. And then when you're not drinking, you feel a whole lot worse than you did before. And so this is why so many people will start to drink, you know, almost every day of the week to just, you know, you'll hear people say, I didn't, you know, when I started to drink and drink alcohol for the first time in my life, I felt normal. And then you'll hear them, you'll hear them, hear them say that if they weren't drinking every day, they didn't feel normal. Anymore. Hmm. Well, the unfortunate truth of alcohol as a chemical is, is that eventually you get to the place where you can't drink enough to feel normal anymore. And it becomes very toxic to your overall functioning. Hmm. That's really, really well put. Um, I never thought of it that way, about making you feel normal, but if you're being affected by some sort of mental health problem, then that makes a lot of sense. So as far as, you know, we talk a lot about anxiety on, on this show and how does, so a lot of times you'll go home and you'll say, I'm going to have a glass of wine to calm myself down. So I'm less anxious, but drinking two or three glasses of wine could actually enhance that anxiety. Am I wrong in thinking that? Well, in the short term, it would likely um, have some some you know lowering effect on the anxiety, um, you know. But the following day, the anxiety would actually feel worse or could potentially be worse. So, it is one of those things that uh, 
you know, alcohol as a, as a, as a chemical and as a molecule is a, is a uh, central nervous system depressant. So it actually calms your, your brain and your central nervous system down. Um, and so what people appreciate when they, when they have a few glasses of wine like that is, is that it, they sort of feel calm. They feel calm down. They do feel those effects. Now what they may experience the next morning or, or, or even later in the night, sometimes for people is they may experience this sort of rebound effect of then a higher level of anxiety, more anxiety, you know, more stress to the system, which then the brain tells them, or they sort of start to make this, um, association. Well, if I, if I drink more then that will go away and I'll feel better. And so that's one of the things we see. Oddly enough, um, a lot of people's, uh, like we talked about just a moment ago, when you're, when you're, when you're really vulnerable to having a really profound effect from this, it's, uh, it's very, very um, interesting to see because patients or people who don't feel that way just tend to drink less. So there's a lot of people just to kind of say the other part of it. There's a lot of people that have the same sort of thing like you're sitting there a minute ago. I'll come home and drink a few glasses of wine. Well, oddly enough, people that are not as vulnerable to alcohol is becoming a problem for them. They don't get the same benefits. So a lot of people who don't really drink that much just by the nature of their biology don't drink that much because it doesn't really help them. It doesn't really make them feel better. It doesn't really have the same effect or the same impact, if you will. And you've met people like this, too. You run across people every day in your life that you'll say something and you'll just notice, you know, there's always groups of people out there that just don't seem to drink as much as as other groups do. Part of that is a lot of us. A lot of those people have tried it. Just didn't work for them. It became more of a waste of time, energy and money more so than it was effective for them. So oddly enough, the people who find drinking to be very, very helpful and very uh, useful tend to congregate together. So our social groups, people who drink more tend to hang out more with each other who do drink more. People who don't drink as much tend to hang out with other people who don't drink as much. And you actually see this in adult adult groups and cultures. A lot of people don't look at it from from an overall uh, theme like this, but you'll see this. You know, even on college campuses, you have a large number of people who hang out together and a lot of that social activity is built around alcohol. But there's also large components of college age students who who have done that, tried that. It was not, you know, beneficial to them. And so they hang around in larger groups doing other things, other interests. Um, yeah. You know, so it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, that's great to point out, um, and, you know, especially for these college students who enter a lot of people enter, enter into college thinking that's kind of a rite of passage sure. uh, for their experience. When in fact it's not, <laughs> you can have great time without experiencing any of that. So I, I think we can all answer this um, easily, but is there, is there an association between drinking too much and, you know, suicidal thoughts? I guess if you're prone to that sort of thing. Yeah, one of the things we know about uh, suicidal thoughts, uh, suicide attempts, and even even suicide completions are, is there's usually a level of um, external influence or or being under the influence of something, and uh, and in most cases, uh, or in a large number of cases, that that is alcohol related. Alcohol is readily available. It's one of the most readily available things out there for people to to buy and use and to consume and consume and to feel different. Uh, so in most cases, in a lot of cases, not necessarily in all, but um, a lot of times when you drink, drink heavily uh, and you become impaired, it actually lowers your ability to think clearly. It, it lowers your inhibitions. I mean, we all know about people who drank too much, who did things that were, you know, embarrassing or other things that they wouldn't do had they not otherwise been under the influence. 
Uh, and that can have the same impact if you're very, very depressed or very, very anxious, or if you've been in a place where you, you know, as a, as a completely unimpaired person, you've been close to suicidal thoughts or suicidal acts or, or even attempts, you know, um, alcohol or any, or really any other drug could also be the very thing that sort of removes that last barrier of, uh, protection from yourself. So, you know, a lot of times and and especially in the emergency rooms and in different places, when people are in that place, uh, usually, you know, impairment from alcohol or some other chemical is usually a piece of that as well. Hmm. Um, on a completely opposite end of the spectrum, a lot of these, us, especially in college, um, and even as adults have social anxiety. Uh, and we have been told you know, throughout the ages that having a cocktail may help improve that social anxiety and loosen us up a little bit. Are there other ways that you could suggest dealing with that rather than having a drink, especially for those that don't want to drink and those of us that may take it too far? Yeah, sure. Well, and it, it sort of depends on how significant it is. I think, you know, when you say that, what comes to my mind is I think about people who have very severe and kind of high levels of social anxiety. A lot of people have a milder or lower level that they can kind of work through or once they start to talk to people or once they sort of get comfortable in the environment, it sort of goes away and it, it may not be that much of a barrier to them uh, to be there and to be present. But for, for a lot of people that have moderate to severe levels of social anxiety, it can really be something that prevents them from, from talking to people, engaging in the situation. And, and, you know, depending on what they're there for, if they have to give a speech or talk to coworkers or, or different things like that. So, you know, social anxiety disorder is one of the, one of the biggest things out there, you know, that is really, really responsive to uh, therapy, individual therapy. Uh, it's very responsive to medications if those are indicated and needed. You know, but one of the other things is that people, um, there's there's all all kinds of things that they can learn to do in those environments, practice them, you know, be prepared for it. You know, the main thing with the social anxiety is people just usually feel very afraid and 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 uh, overwhelmed by the by the nature of what's going on. Uh, there's usually an external factor to that: the environment, the people, the location, the strangeness. You know, the, all those things that make us anxious. There's also an internal component to that as well. Your breathing speeds up, your heart rate speeds up, you get hot, you get sweaty, you get all these things going on on the inside that makes it really hard to uh, to function in those environments. Fortunately, um, there's ways to teach yourself to navigate both the external environment and the internal environment. You know, uh, and that's one of the things we do with uh, with the individual therapy is teach people breathing exercises, calming exercises, things that you can literally do in the room you know, internally that nobody else around you even knows that's going on to calm yourself, to get yourself through those situations. Cool. Yeah, that's, those are great ideas. So let's get to the, the meat of this. This is really interesting to me. Um, what are some of the long-term effects of heavy drinking on our brain and our mental health? You know, maybe that can help a, a student to think twice about going down that road. Mm-hmm. Uh, long, long-term effects of, you know, heavy sustained, you know, even, even weekly use on, on a young person's brain can lead to difficulty with uh, information retention, different difficulty with information recall. You know, one of the biggest features of college is usually it's very hard. The classes are hard. There's a lot of information, you know, from an academic perspective, um, it's the first place that people find themselves to be in where that may be very challenging to them. A lot of the things that college students talk about is, is that, you know, high school was, was difficult, but they, 
they studied and with the structure and support of their parents and the family home and things like that, it was pretty easy for them. They did very well. Well, when they come to college, uh, you know, it's a very new experience. Uh, and sometimes the information, the academic component is, is much more difficult than what they were used to. And then if you combine that with drinking three to four days a week or so, or maybe even just one or two days of really heavy drinking like that. One of the things students will find or they'll describe is they'll say, you know, I just don't feel like I can learn things how I was in high school. I don't feel like I can do as well on the test and things like that. And, and a lot of times they, they may not have very much understanding that, you know, studying and being a very good student Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday can really be um, impacted by, you know, drinking on Thursday, Friday, Saturday is just one of those things that we see. So, and really long-term, we know from looking at, looking at uh, the brains of our older population, people who chronically drink alcohol for a longer period of time have a higher rate of dementia. They have higher rates of cognitive problems, cognitive declines, uh, and it's toxic on your brain. And so when you look at a, a person's brain who's, you know, 65 or older, who's drank heavily for a really long period of time, structurally and anatomically, their brain looks very different than the brain of somebody in that same same age group who's not drank much um, over the lifespan. Uh, the um, the brain is smaller. It's shrunken down. You can just tell it's had a, had a negative impact from the toxicity of long-term alcohol exposure. What are some... Uh, coping skills that students can employ um, rather than drinking? Well, it's, uh, this is the things I like to say that people hate to hear. And so one of the things that uh, has, you know, it's been around since, um, you know, since the beginnings of healthcare, you know, diet, exercise, lifestyle, um, those sort of things are always the first things that I think about. One of the biggest things that uh, leads to stress and, and, and increased, uh, um, dysfunction of our bodies nowadays is, is a very poor diet. Uh, you know, a lot of people just, you know, you have to work very hard to eat healthy and to be healthy, uh, in today's times with, you know, quick, easy food, convenience, you know, different things of that nature. Uh, so, you know, when I say diet, I don't mean in the way of losing weight or trying to change your weight, but strictly of the, what you eat, what you put in your body and trying to make that as healthy as you possibly can. Uh, when you talk to a lot of, when I talk to a lot of people out there, a lot of them are not eating very healthy at all. They may eat one or two meals a day or really just one decent meal a day. And the other parts of their food intake during the day is just sort of secondary to whatever the day brings them. Uh, exercise is one of the things that after, after people leave their home and, and get out into college and different things like that can fall way off. You have a lot of people that play organized sports and do organized athletic activities through high school. And then when they get to college, they, they don't do any of those things. So the exercise can be really, really one of the best coping skills out there. It helps increase serotonin. It increases norepinephrine, increases dopamine. It really increases the neurotransmitters in your brain that makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the other part of it is just creating a new social network support, you know, creating a, a an, an environment and a group of people around you that also help you to feel better. Colleges have lots of groups and lots of organizations that people can participate in. But even in the community, there's things that people can do and get involved in. One of the things of, of a coping skill is to have uh, as much of these of these things around you as you can, and uh, so that by doing a doing a little bit of them every day, uh, you feel better overall. Mm-hmm. If you're a student athlete, and you know, I think that binge drinking is probably a big part of how alcohol affects student athletes because. Like you said, they're working out. They have training. They have goals that they have to accomplish for whatever particular sport they're doing. Does binge drinking have the same effect that we've been talking about on these kids as just 
daily drinking, um, which I guess a lot of what all college kids do is binge mm-hmm. drinking, you know. Um, is that affecting the mind the, the exact same way? Yeah, in college athletes, it affects the mind in exactly the same way. Uh, you know, given their their level of physical health and endurance, they likely get over it and 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 they they likely recover from some of the other physical effects more quickly or more effectively than others. Uh, it just sort of depends. Sometimes so the the consumption and the level of of um, consumption there can be very high, but on a cognitive level. Uh, the brain is susceptible to it the same way as it is in other other brains. I mean, you know, we're all unique and we're all different. We're all individuals, but at, at a at a biological level, everybody's brain is is vulnerable to the same same toxic things and toxic effects of things out there. Uh, but from a physical standpoint, I would estimate that you know, student athletes, people who are in better physical health and in physical condition, you know, are going to recover from the physical effects of it a little bit more quickly. What you can see in athletes, and if you talk to a lot of athletes, and oddly enough, a lot of professional athletes um, really focus on on the on the diet, the exercise, the nutrition, of course, and they don't put anything into their body that considered to be you know chemicals because they can they can see the negative impact on their performance. So sometimes if college athletes are being being honest. They'll tell you that after they've had, you know, long weekends or been exposed to, to alcohol or other other substances, is that in the days after that, you know, the training, the weight training, the speed, some of the things that they measure themselves upon, they notice a difference. They notice a difference in their endurance and in their physical capabilities. You know, and one of the one of the things you see over time is the more and more you expose yourself, the longer and longer it takes to get over these effects. You know, so an 18 year old college freshman may recover in a day or two, you know, a senior 22 year old college athlete who's been doing this now for four years, it may take days to weeks for that performance to come all the way up. But oddly enough, a lot of, a lot of uh, athletes after some of the initial exposures and after some of these things, that's really one of the things that motivates them away from, from alcohol use as they notice that impact on their, on their sport. Um, Yeah. Right. They have that monitor of daily workouts to see how it does affect them so profoundly. Right. And, and decrease their performance. I did want to say something there just to follow up. One of the things we had not talked about, we talked about heavy drinking a little bit early in the beginning. One of the things we didn't address was binge drinking. And I was going to just throw that out there just yeah. for, for completeness, you know, so as part of binge drinking, um, the main thing we look at with that is that, you know, it's, it's, it's about a quantity of drinks, but it's really about the quantity over a certain amount of time. So uh, for women, uh, somebody that drinks, you know, four drinks or four of those standard drinks that we talked about earlier or more in a two hour period is considered to be binge drinking. So this would be the case of you go out, you're very excited, you sit down, next thing you know, in an hour and a half to two hours, you know, you've had had four drinks or more in that time frame. Now, this also includes shots and different things like that. It's one of the things that people don't realize that, you know, one of those shots that you take is a, is a 1.5 ounce of alcohol. And those usually are measured out. You know, but usually take people are taking those very quickly, uh, and so you can pretty quickly get over over the binge drinking level, limit. Um, for men, it's considered to be five drinks in that same two hour period. The reason this can be important is the speed at which you consume alcohol can also is also connected to the toxicity level or the impairment level. So you have people that really in two to three hours can impair themselves by putting in so much alcohol so fast that it's. Uh, you know, that it's, uh, that it can lead to intoxication and different things like that. Um, you know, this is where some of the blood alcohol levels and some of these come from is that, um, you know, to, to have a blood alcohol level in your system that's high enough that you shouldn't operate vehicles or heavy machinery and those sort of things. 
part of that is based off how much you drink and how fast. Um, hmm. And that's where sort of the binge drinking, the binge drinking concept came from. Um, the, uh, and if, if people do this more than five, five times a month, it's considered to be, you know, alcohol abuse or they could have a full on alcohol use disorder. One of the beliefs about this is, is that, you know, young people in high school and in other places, they start this trend of trying to consume a lot of alcohol quickly as to be able to avoid detection, to be able to get away with it. You know, it's even in 18 year olds in college towns, uh, it's not very, um, realistic to go in and sit somewhere as an 18 year old and slowly socially, you know, and appropriately consume alcohol. In most of these cases, they're doing this at home or they're doing this somewhere else, or they're trying to sort of get this in quickly, uh, to, um, to, to start the process. So I did want to just touch on that a little bit, but anybody that's, and that's what we see in a lot of, a lot of people that are under 21, frankly, is the speed and the rate of consumption is very high. It's very strong and it's very fast, which leads, uh, can lead to intoxication from binge drinking. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. What is or what or where can a parent or a student find help um, for any sort of drinking problem that they have or or a friend or, you know, what steps do they take? Where do they go? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. In in most uh, cases, the best thing that you can do in your local area, and oddly enough, the colleges and college campuses have a wide array of, uh, of places that you can contact and talk to people. Most people have on the, on college campuses now, you know, student health centers. Uh, some people have, uh, you know, different groups and organizations where you can go in and talk to people about that. Uh, a lot of this is done as part of the orientation during the freshman year. They talk about, you know, if you thought, if you start to have trouble, you know, where you can reach out and access services, you know, in, in the community level, you can always go to, any, any kind of healthcare organization, you know, urgent cares, uh, primary care locations, different places like that. People in healthcare are becoming more aware of this and more helpful to young people and to students. You know, if you don't have a regular, if you move to a new town and you don't have a regular doctor yet, one of the things that I talk with young people about is that you're 18, you're an adult. And as part of being here in the college town and on campus, you need a regular, you know, uh, healthcare provider to help you to continue to take care of yourself. So you can always reach out to those locations. The internet's always great. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of places and support, you know, resources out there have websites, they have addresses. You can, you can get online and a lot of times find a number to call or, or uh, interaction to do that's free and over the phone in the beginning, just to reach out and get help and support. You know, those are, those are some places I think about from a website standpoint for alcohol specifically, we do have a national Institute on alcohol abuse and alcoholism. That's a long, a long, um, a long kind of, name for an organization but it has a lot of good information out there a lot of people like to look at things on the internet do a lot of self-research you know and so it's uh it's a good place to start if you just have some overall questions for yourself or for a family member it breaks it down and very easy to read very easy to understand information so that you could evaluate you know kind of look at your situation or look at that situation of a family member if needed cool we'll uh we'll put a link for that in the show notes yeah so last thing as a parent do you have any suggestions for for them as to how they talk about alcohol with their children before they send them off to school? Because mm-hmm. it is an appropriate conversation that needs to, that sure. needs to be had. Yeah, I think um, my, my advice with parents on that is, is, is to start very young with young people. Um, one of the things we notice now is that uh, – People are exposing them al- themselves to alcohol earlier and earlier every year, uh, even even down to as early as 12 and 13 years old. So one of the things I talk with parents about um, 
it's at an early age to start to talk about alcohol and the seriousness of it. And really, if you think about the driving age and getting a driver's license as being sort of the first big uh, real time of responsibility and those sort of things out there. So one of the things I encourage parents to do is to talk about, you know, not drinking and not driving, not being impaired behind the wheel of a car and the, and the responsibility, you know, that that requires a lot of young people, you know, don't necessarily uh, think about that aspect. And so one of the things I talk with parents about is just because, you know, to start to set that, that tone and that expectation with young people that the privilege to drive as a 16 year old is also connected to the responsibility to not drive impaired and that in the household, you know, I'm, you know, we talked about this, you know, a little earlier, you know, if you're not 21, you shouldn't be drinking. You shouldn't be drinking with your parents. You shouldn't be drinking in other places. And the conversation I think for them to have with young people is, is just a, a message of if, if they do find themselves um, engaging in that, to have a safe plan, have a safe activity, have somebody, you know, that they can call if they need help, whether it's a parent or whether it's somebody in the local community, but the main thing is just also not to not to underestimate the responsibility, you know, of of those things, because in college towns, you know, at 18, uh, and a lot of the things that go on, the the legal ramifications and the legal aspect side of things are very clear where they are on those things. So, um, you know, and people can get themselves into to pretty significant uh, problems with universities and different places, different things. I think just having an open, honest conversation about it. One of the things we know is to to be honest and direct in the communication with young people about it. They'll have questions and you don't necessarily have to have answers for every question they may have, but just being able to discuss it and talk with them about it to, to remove some of the fear factor from it, to remove some of the things that are there. A lot of young people, when they go to college are scared. It's the first time they've been away from parents for a really long time and they don't, they don't really know what to expect or how things may happen. So sometimes just having a plan, you know, for what to do if they find themselves in these situations, the different peer pressure situations, the different things that go on, you know, and um, you know, and that that can be that can be a step in the right direction. Absolutely, that's a good point. I mean, the, a lot of these kids that are that that peer pressure is a big deal. You know, they're very concerned with wanting to fit in, and drinking is a part of that quote unquote fitting in. Um, or, or that's how they feel. Um, so yeah, that, I think that converse, those conversations, honest conversations with parents would help uh, alleviate that fear to some degree. You know, the more open, we talk about this a good deal on the show too, is the more open and honest we can be as parents, the, the better off our children will be. Um, and I think too, a lot of those, um, for a lot of those children that are engaging in drinking, it's a great day and age that we have Uber and Lyft. So if you found yourself being irresponsible, Sure. Remember yeah. that those those two companies are available uh, for you as well. Yeah, that, that that would be part of the plan. I mean, one of the things that we still uh, one of the things we still interact with is that most uh, most places now in some of your bigger cities and some of your bigger areas, uh, maybe not quite as much. But in the, in the majority of the United States, most people, you know, uh, transportation still is a big component of that. I mean, most people are going to either drive or ride somewhere you know, to and from their locations you know, depending on things. So sometimes that's a good, that's a very good point is just to have a plan for, you know, a safe, safe mode of travel. You know, that's, that's very important. That's been one of the, one of the biggest reasons I think Uber and and Lyft has been so readily acceptable in a lot of areas and towns is because it does provide people an alternative. You know, we have, we have um, uh, transport options now in places where we, where there there were no options before. So that's something to look at. And also from, from getting food, getting other services. One of the things I've been impressed with as part of the whole, you know, the whole pandemic is that, 
you know, people have now started to lean on these services a little more to get the food brought to them, get things brought to them. And it's interesting that, you know, you can, you can use these services now, you know, maybe, maybe you've had things going on during the day or during the evening that you shouldn't really get out and drive and go get food or something like that. Now you have a service you can reach out to that will, uh, will bring it to you. Some cities and places have their own, their own organizations have created these delivery services, you know, as part of this or everything from food to groceries or whatever a person may need. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of good options out there to keep yourself safe. Um, the best option being don't drink <laughs> if you're under 21, sure. um, right. as you said multiple times. And uh, yeah. And the science backs that up, I, I believe. Um but, you know, we, we just, you know, we, we, we care so much about our college students. We live in, I, I live in a college town. You work with Right Track Medical Group and y'all are in college towns. And this is a, y'all support a lot of these students. And so this is a very important conversation for those campuses and for those students mm-hmm. and for those universities that you work very uh, closely with. You know, we had recently had a conversation um, with some folks out of Starkville and, uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit because they were just, they collaborated, you know, we, and they were communicating with each other, both right track and the university. And it was pretty, pretty neat to see that level of support that's out there um, for our kids and for us as parents, you know, that we'll have kids in this uh, ultimately we'll hopefully go to college at some point. Right. Well, Dr. Stephen Panel, thank you so much. Um, is there anything you'd like to end with? Anything you'd like to add uh, before we take off? No, the the thing I focus on, uh, you made a good point there about our locations and the college towns and those sort of things. And one of the reasons we did that is uh, a lot of people don't realize this about, you know, about everything that we deal with from a, from a mental health standpoint. Illness as a, as a process for humans is mostly something that happens later on in life. Most people, 45, 50, 55 and older, you know, uh, fortunately for, for us in, in this country and, and, and people in general, most of our healthcare conditions actually occur and happen much, much later on in life with, um, with the things that we take care of. It's actually exactly the opposite of that. A lot of these things start to develop in early years, teenage years, you know, but most significantly everything that we work with and take care of for a lot of people out there, it's very, very, um, unique and developing for them between 18 and 26 years old, 18 and 30 years old. So, part of that is where a lot of this comes from is difficult because young people are not used to being, you know, in that situation where they have those symptoms. Parents are not used to dealing with that. I mean, mostly we we're used to taking care of our, our, our parents and grandparents and the older generation. So that's one of the things I like to point out too, as part of this is there's so much going on for young people from the age of 18 to 26, especially, uh, but really even from 18 all the way up to 35 years old, there's so much development and different things that go on for people. Uh, that is one of the things that can be very scary and uh, and unexpected and those sort of things. So it is one of the things I do like to point out every chance that I get is that from a from a healthcare perspective, it is something that usually start to imp- starts to impact people earlier on in life. Not not necessarily everybody. I mean, some people experience this later and later on in life as well. But for a lot of our young people, we take care of the the adults that we take care of. It can be a very delicate time between 18 and 30 years old. Uh, and so a lot of people are in college and then the master's programs, graduate programs, professional schools, you know, different things during that time frame. So it can be something just for people to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. Um, Dr. Panel, thank you so much for spending. I, I know I've kept you quite a long time. We're reaching about 45 minutes here, but uh, your insights were very worthwhile. And I know a lot of uh, students and parents and uh, we'll be so appreciative of, of uh, 
what you've given us here today. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. If you have questions about mental health and the COVID-19 pandemic that you'd like our providers to answer in a future episode, please email southoffine at righttrackmedical.com. And if you'd like more information about Right Track Medical Group or the South of Fine podcast, please visit righttrackmedical.com. Thanks to our production team, Kelly Huntsberger, Caitlin Clegg, Carol Ann Hughes, Alka Batista, and Reese Lau. Special thanks to Squadcast for providing superior remote interview services. <laughs>